Hey, good morning. I am Jamie Borchik. I am one of the elders here at Park. It's great to have you with us on the Sunday morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can find Genesis chapter 11. And if you do not have a Bible, I would encourage you to even stand up right now, walk to the back and grab one from the table in the back. Um, bringing a Bible with you to church, looking at God's word as we're preaching is really, really valuable. Um, one of the things that I practice, I heard a pastor say when I was young and when I was a new Christian, that there are eyes and pencils and pens. There are eyes and pencils and pens. And when you have a pencil or a pen with the word of God and you're listening to teaching, you're listening to a sermon and you're following and you're making notes in your Bible, it helps you to remember, to learn, to see, to better understand who God is. And so we want you to have a Bible and bring it with you to church so that you can take notes, so that you can be engaged with God's word in a deeper way. So encouragement to you to do that. All right, Genesis 11, one through nine today. So the city of Chicago burnt to the ground in the summer of 1871. And yet a little more than a decade later, it was soaring back up to the sky. The first skyscraper in the world was the home insurance building at the corner of LaSalle and Adams Street. And it was completed in 1885. By 1893, there were a dozen skyscrapers standing between 16 and 20 stories tall centered in the loop. And that was just the beginning. In 1974, the Sears Tower opened and for 25 years it stood as the tallest building in the world. And today there are 126 skyscrapers in our city with more under construction as we speak. Chicago is a city that made a name for itself because of the tall buildings that stretch for the sky. And for nearly 150 years now, Chicago has remained a city that reaches for the sky. And maybe that's why you're here too. It is that aspirational aspect of cities that draws people of ambition from all over the country and all over the world. People come to great cities with great ambition. They come to reach for the sky, to build their reputations, to make a name for themselves. As Jay-Z riffing on Frank Sinatra famously said of New York, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And that's true not just for New York, but true for all great cities and especially this great city. So maybe you're here today because you too are reaching for the sky. This summer we've been preaching a series called Great Stories. We've been looking at some of the great stories in the Old Testament scriptures. And today we're looking at a story that is really about people who are reaching for the sky. This morning we're going to be looking at the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So you can find that in your Bible. And as you turn there, as you find it, let me pray. And ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this gathering together. It's beautiful to see your people gathered together on a beautiful Sunday morning. We're thankful to be here. And as you open your word, would you open our eyes to see you? Would you speak to us? Would you teach us? Would you draw our hearts to you in a deeper way? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, which is Mesopotamia or modern day Iraq, and they settled there. So this is where our story begins. One language, the same words, everyone can understand each other. Collectively, the people find a nice place and they settle down. It all sounds pretty idyllic. 
So what could possibly go wrong? Well, there are two clues in these first two verses that not all is right at the outset of this story. The first is the directional marker east. When Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, do you remember which direction they go? East. And when their son Cain flees from the presence of the Lord after murdering his brother Abel, do you remember which way he goes? East. So east of Eden is not where you want to be. But here the people are east. The second clue comes in the final words of verse 2. It says they settled there. So way back in Genesis 1.28, God commanded the first people to fill the earth. Fill the earth. And then in Genesis 9 verse 1 and again in 9 verse 7, after the Noahic flood, God repeated that same command. And he told Noah and his children to fill the earth. And then in chapter 10 verse 32, which is the verse that immediately precedes our text this morning, it summarizes Noah's family tree like this. It says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad in the earth. And so the whole movement of Genesis has been outward. Fill the earth, spread abroad. And from the beginning, that outward movement was never just about physical bodies doing so. It was always about creating culture along the way. This is what theologians refer to as the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. God's mandate to people to fill the earth with the beauty and diversity of different peoples reflecting God's image in different places all over the planet. To have people leave Eden and go to places like Africa and Asia and Europe and the Americas and Australia and to go all over the planet and to create different cultures that reflect God's image in different ways. But here in chapter 11, what do the people do? They find a nice spot and they settle down. The Hebrew verb means to sit down, to remain, to stay. It is the polar opposite of spreading out and filling the earth. And so when the people settle, they aren't just settling. Do you know what they're really doing? They're resisting God's plan and rejecting God's command. They're resisting God's plan and they're rejecting God's command. Now look at verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. This is stage one of the people settling. And here, human enterprise becomes the focus of the story. Rather than using naturally occurring stone, the people make their own bricks and produce tar from oil. This actually accords with historical records that show that brick making was invented in this region of the world around the 4th millennium BC. But the key point here is that the people create their own building materials. Now verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And this is stage two of their settling. Now we see their real ambition. They have building materials, and so they put those building materials to work to build a city. Now cities are not inherently problematic. A city is just a place where lots of people live in close proximity. 
And the Bible is full of cities. The Bible actually begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. In Revelation 21, our future home is described as a holy city coming down out of heaven. So there's no automatic problem with people building a city here. But there is a peculiar architectural feature of this particular city. A tower with its top in the heavens. The people set out to build themselves a skyscraper. Now, if you were to travel to Iraq today, you could go visit the ruins of several ancient towers like this. They're known as ziggurats. You can see an example here on the screen. And many of their ruins still exist today. One of the written records from ancient Mesopotamia actually describes a now lost ziggurat that once stood some 300 feet high. That's a 30-story building several millennia ago. That's an ancient skyscraper. And that's what these people in our text today set out to build. And notice the reason why in verse 4. What's their motivation? What's their real ambition? Let us do what? Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. So who is this building project all about? It's all about us. It's all about me. This skyscraper is fundamentally human-centered. And who then is this project therefore not about? It's not about God. It's not about God. God is nowhere to be seen in these first four verses. In fact, what was hinted at in verse 2 is made explicit here in verse 4. Look at the final line of verse 4. Lest we be dispersed from over the face of the whole earth. The people do not want to fill the earth. They do not want to obey God's plan for the world. So this is a direct refusal to do what God commanded. This is a rebellion. And this is, not, this is all about us. It is all about me and not at all about God. And this skyscraper, therefore, becomes the perfect illustration of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. You know, you and I, we build skyscrapers too. They're not made out of brick or metal or stone. You usually can't go visit them at a physical address. They're more abstract, but they're just as real. Like the people in this story, we spend our lives trying to make a name for ourselves. Some of us want to be famous, either in real life or at least on social media. Others of us want to be popular in school, in the workplace, in our neighborhood. Many of us, we want to be impressive. We want people to think we're great. We want to have trophies and accolades and impressive resumes that we can show off. Like the people of Babel, we want to make a name for ourselves. And so we reach for the sky with our careers, with our hobbies, with our accomplishments, and we build skyscrapers of our own personal success. Look at me. I'm smart, or I'm rich, or I'm funny, or I've got the best house on the block, or my family is better than yours, or I've got an impressive degree or an impressive title. Or even look at my church or look at my ministry. Look at what I've built. We set our ambitions 
on making a name for ourselves. Now, for the record, there's nothing wrong with building a skyscraper. It's great to make something big and beautiful out of your life. Ambition is a good thing. But why are you doing it? What is your motivation? What is the direction of your ambition? Does it point toward you or does it point toward God? The problem with Babel was that the people stopped filling the earth for the sake of God's name and instead started building a tower for the sake of their own names. Life ceased to be all about God and it instead became all about them. And how often do we do the same thing? I want you to be honest with yourself right here for a second. In the various building projects that make up your life, in your career, your family, your education, in your hobbies, in your ministry, what is your motivation? What direction does your ambition point? Is it about you or is it about God? Now, verse 5 marks a turning point in our story. Read it with me. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So the construction project is underway, but now the building building inspector shows up on the scene. And in one of the many ironies that mark the story, the people set out to build a tower that would top out in the heavens. But what does the Lord have to do in order to see it? He has to come down. He has to come down. So there's a great scene in the original Avengers movie where uh, Loki is battling against the Avengers and and Hulk is kind of chasing him and Loki and Hulk end up in a room together and Loki is protesting to Hulk and he says, he says, uh, he says, I am a God and I won't be bullied by lesser beings like you. And some of you have seen this and you know what happens, but in mid-protest as Loki is shouting at Hulk, do you know what Hulk does? Hulk grabs him by the ankles and he picks him up and he goes, bam, 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 like Loki's a little rag doll. And then he leaves Loki laying on the ground and as Hulk is walking away in all his big bad self, he looks back and he says, puny God, (laughs) puny God. See, the people of Babel, they built their tower and they said, we won't be bossed around by some little deity anymore. But then God comes down and he basically says to him, Puny tower, puny tower. You see, no matter how high we build our skyscrapers, the Lord will always have to descend to come down and see them. We are puny by comparison. Do you notice how the people are described in verse 5? They're called the children of men. A literal translation would be the sons of Adam. And the emphasis here is on the very human condition of these builders. They are mere men, mere mortals, puny by comparison to the great God who made them and who made everything in the first place. Now, when you think about this verse and what God does here, it's almost comical. And yet to God, this is not at all a joke. 
Look at verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. On the surface, when you first read this verse, you might think that God is kind of shaking in his boots saying, "Uh uh-oh, if if these people get their stuff together, if they work really hard, if they band together and they try, they might just succeed. They might just get up to heaven. They might depose me, dethrone me. As if God is some uh, some kind of totalitarian dictator who's terrified of a coup being successful. Let me be clear that that is not at all what is happening in this story. God is concerned. He's deeply concerned. But his concern is not for him. His concern is for them. His concern is for the very people who are rebelling against him. See, God is goodness personified. He is the source of everything that is good. And these people, what they're doing is they are rejecting him. They're choosing to put themselves before him, their plans before his plans, their ambition over him. And if they keep going in the direction they're going, if they keep building this tower, they're not going to get closer to God and to what is good. They're actually going to keep getting farther and farther and farther away from it. If they remain unified, things are not going to get better. They're going to get infinitely worse. Their present unity will not lead to infinite productivity. Rather, it will lead to infinite evil. Nothing, no evil ambition, no sinister skyscraper, nothing will be impossible for them. There will be no end to the evil that they could bring into the world. A key word appears in this verse for the first time in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew word is the word am. You see it translated people here in verse 6. Now earlier in Genesis, the word nation appears repeatedly. But this is the first time we see that Hebrew word for people. And the use of people in contrast to nation in this context tells us something significant. God's plan from the beginning was the cultural mandate to fill the earth with the beauty and diversity of different people all over the planet. It was to have many nations on the earth populated by many different peoples. So in Genesis 10, the passage that immediately precedes our text today, we see what is known as the table of nations, where some 70 different nations and their respective origins are mapped out. And in Genesis 12, which comes right after our text today, we see God call Abraham and promise to make out of him a great nation through whom all the families of the whole world will be blessed. But here in between, we see the people of Babylon wanting to remain one people, refusing to fill the earth, refusing to spread out to Africa and Asia and the Americas and every other place on the planet, but instead clinging to their sameness and in so doing, rejecting God and his plan for the world. Their ambition is to remain one people in rebellion against the one true God. And so just as God took action in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rejected him and his plan, so too here at Babel will God take action. Which brings us to verse 7. In verses 3 and 4, the people said, come let us make and come let us build. And so in response, using us language that hints at the Trinity, at the Trinitarian nature of who God is, God responds and he says in verse 7, come let us go down. Come let us go down. The people want to go up, so God says, hey, I'm coming down. He then continues, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So God's solution to their rebellion, it is not to smite them or to destroy them. 
Rather, his solution is to confuse them and disperse them. He disrupts their rebellious unity for the sake of his planned diversity. As one commentator puts it, better division than collective apostasy. Better division than collective apostasy. Now follow me on this. This is a little technical, but it's really fascinating. The Hebrew word that is translated confuse here in verse 7. It contains the consonants N, B, and L. N, B, L in that order. And in a brilliant literary twist in this story, those are the exact same consonants that appear in the word for bricks back in verse 3. Except this time, the order of those consonants is reversed. So the L, B, N of bricks now becomes the N, B, L of confusion. And this reversal of the very sounds in these words is indicative of God's greater reversal of their rebellious human activity. God says, I will unbrick what the rebellious builders brick. I will unbuild what the rebellious builders build. And so at the end of verse 7, the people's language is confused. They can no longer understand one another. And verse 8 shows us the effect of that confusion. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. The result of confusion is dispersal. They finally stop going up, and instead they go out. The nations of the world begin to be populated. Diverse peoples begin to develop. God's plan continues to move forward, and the rebellious city with its tower is left half-built. I want to show you a painting by the Dutch Renaissance master Peter Bruegel the Elder. This is titled The Great Tower of Babel. In this painting, you see a tower that somewhat resembles the Colosseum in Rome. In the lower left corner, there's a man down here who looks to be a king and a patron. I don't know if you can see this from the back, but down here, there's a man who looks to be the king and the patron of this project. And he's surrounded by people who are kind of uh, fawning over him. They're the architects and builders of this project. Some of them are even bowing down as if in worship of this man. And so in this image, there's a man who has made a name for himself. He is a big deal. He's built this tower and it is all about him. And yet, what do you notice about the tower behind him? If you look closely, what you'll see is that his tower is unfinished, and yet it's already falling apart. It soars above the city below, while at the same time its stones tumble to the streets beneath. And this picture is a perfect image of what happens when we build skyscrapers for the sake of our own names. We leave cities half-built and falling apart. Think for a second about our own great city here in Chicago. Chicago really is one of the greatest cities on the planet. A couple weeks ago, Kinsey and I went down with some friends to Millennium Park on a gorgeous Tuesday night to watch Top Gun Maverick at the amphitheater there. Thousands of people in the park. I think the Marshalls were there that night. Is that right? Yeah. So Josh and Lynn were there. You you, you saw this, right? So, so, So we're 
Millennium Park. It's a gorgeous Tuesday night. There's thousands of people. You're surrounded by skyscrapers that are bathed in the colors of the sunset. The lake is off in the distance with the, the light glistening off the surface. You've got a cool breeze blowing through the park and you've got Tom Cruise flying through canyons and doing crazy stuff in a fighter plane. Like it was amazing, just spectacular. The whole night was amazing. And then we finished the movie and we walked back to our car in this parking garage. And as we enter into this parking garage, we are greeted by the overwhelming reek of fresh urine. Right? Like there are spectacular parts of our city. And then there are some not so spectacular parts of our city. Urine is somewhat comical, but it gets a lot worse than urine as you go around Chicago. There are decaying parts of our city. There are neglected neighborhoods. There are streets full of potholes. There are buildings marked by bullet holes. Some people live in amazing houses while others sleep in tents under the overpass on Lakeshore Drive. Some people get world-class educations at some of the best universities in the world, while other people get to high school and they can't even read. For all the marvels of Chicago, like Babel and like every other city in the world, our city is at best half-built. It's at best half-built. And how many of our lives are half-built like that too? We put up our personal skyscrapers so that other people can see the grand accomplishments that have come from our selfish ambition. Our success in business or school or sports or music or even ministry. The great things we can do. The vast sums of money we've accumulated. The great power we wield. Our eloquence or our wit. And we look really, really great from a distance. But if the people who see us and celebrate us from a distance were to get close, what would they see? Or maybe better, if we were to ask the people who actually know us best, the people who live with us, the people who, who are really close in our lives, if we were to ask them, what do you see? What would they say? If people took a look under the overpasses of your life, if they left the tourist attractions that you put on public display and they went into your living room instead, if they looked at the foundation of your life, at who you really are when no one is looking, if they looked at what really matters most to you, at what your true ambition really is, what would they see? What would they see? Who is your life all about? Is it about you? Or is it about God? Verse 9 brings the story to its close. This is the end result of human effort apart from God. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The people set out to make a name for themselves. But in the end, not a single one of them is remembered by name. None of the architects or builders of the tower is named here or anywhere else in the Bible or in ancient history. Their individual names are lost forever, erased from memory. 
They failed in their endeavor to make a name for themselves. And the reality is that will likely be true for every single one of us as well. How many of you right this moment could tell me the name of your great-great-grandfather or your great-great-grandmother? Maybe a few of you, but for most of us, that's someone in our own family who lived less than 100 years ago, spent their life building something, and that person is already forgotten. Our ambitions to make a name for ourselves are almost all doomed to fail. And yet the people as a whole do get a name. They get the name Babel, which is a wordplay from that Hebrew NBL word that we talked about earlier that means confusion. And the name they get simply means confused. Confused. And here in verse 9, we see for the first time the name of this city that will become one of the most prominent cities in ancient history. In Hebrew, it is known as Babel, but in Greek and more familiar to many of us, it is Babylon. It's Babylon. And Babylon becomes the supreme example of evil empire all throughout the Old Testament narrative and even on into the book of Revelation. Babylon is the city of man set up in opposition to the city of God. Historically, Babylon built a mighty empire that spanned the ancient Near Eastern world. Babylon reached for the sky and they built something impressive. But as Jesus' disciple John put it in Revelation 18, in the end, it was not her tower or her empire that reached up to heaven, but rather it was her sin, her evil. Babylon built an empire in opposition to God. And today, like the original builders of Babel, Babylon is no more. All that's left of Babylon is ruins. Revelation 18.1, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And y'all, that is what will happen with every skyscraper that you and I build for the sake of our own names too. When life is all about you, you will never be more than half built and you will always end up in ruins. If you spend your life seeking to make a name for yourself and thinking it will work, just like Babel, you are just confused. You are just confused. The point of this story is that God tears down every skyscraper that does not point to him. God tears down every skyscraper that does not point to him. Because ultimately, inevitably, what does not point to him will lead away from him. This final verse of our passage repeats for the second time that it was from Babel that the Lord dispersed people over the face of all the earth. In verse 1, all the earth had the same language. In verse 2, they all settled down in the same place. But here, finally, in verse 9, they go out to do what God made them to do from the very beginning. To spread out, to fill the earth, to become the diversity of peoples and nations that God planned from the start. And in the very next chapter of Genesis, we meet a man named Abraham. And God makes a promise to Abraham. And I want you to look at that promise with me for a second. This is Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. So so fill the earth, spread out, there it is again. Go to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will. And what does the text say there in verse 2? I will make your name great. I will make your name great. 
If Abraham will go and live out God's plan, if Abraham will trust God instead of rebelling against him, if Abraham will make his ambition to follow God, what does God promise to do for Abraham? I will make your name great. God promises to do for Abraham what the tower builders tried to do for themselves. And today, whose name do we all know and remember? Abraham. From Abraham, the story marches forward generation after generation. People persist in their rebellion against God, and yet God remains true to his promises. He keeps pursuing people, offering them a name if only they will trust him instead of trusting in themselves. And the story of the scriptures and the story of human history climaxes when one day, several millennia after Babel, God does once again what he did in the center of our passage today. This whole passage today is centered around verse 5. Structurally, grammatically, narratively, the whole passage hinges on what happens in verse 5. And what does God do in verse 5? When God sees humanity trusting in themselves and rebelling against him, how does God respond? God comes down. God comes down. Now, as many of you know, the last few years, my family and I have spent some significant time in Rome doing ministry. And one of the places we often take people to when they're touring Rome is a place called Scala Santa, the Holy Stairs. Though historically, this background is a little dubious, the story of these stairs is that these were the stairs up which Jesus walked on his way to trial with Pontius Pilate. And it is said that Helena, who was the mother of Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor of Rome, said that Helena brought these stairs from Jerusalem to Rome in around 326 AD. And ever since, pilgrims from around the world have come to these stairs to climb their way closer to God. If you were to visit Rome and go to Scala Santa today, what you would see is pilgrims on their knees climbing these stairs one at a time. And those pilgrims would be on their knees because that is the only way you are allowed to climb these stairs. And if someone goes and if someone climbs these stairs showing proper reverence by kneeling and praying as they go, that individual then will earn indulgences or forgiveness of sin for themselves or for someone else. And why do people do it? Why do people travel from all over the world to come to these stairs and climb on their knees? Why do people invest their resources to make this kind of pilgrimage possible? Well, it is because deep down they know that they need forgiveness. They need the forgiveness they think they can earn by climbing these stairs. And deep down, we all know that we need forgiveness. We all know that God is up. <laughs> we know that we fall short. We know that God is bigger and better and higher and greater. And we know that by comparison, we are puny. When we zoom out and we think about it, when we sit in that reality, we know that God is big and we are little. He is up, he is bigger, and we need, there's a gap and we need to close that gap. Scala Santa is only 28 steps high. But in reality, Scala Santa is another skyscraper. It is a religious skyscraper. It is man's effort to climb his way back to God when he knows he's fallen short. And y'all, you know, that is how the various religions of our world work. 
They recognize that gap between where we are and where we need to be, this gap between our humanity and God's divinity. And they say, you need to go up. Your ambition needs to be up. You need to make it better. You need to get stronger. You need to climb higher. You need to go up. But that is not, that is not what biblical Christianity says. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. The good news at the core of the Christian faith is not that you and I need to go up. Rather, the good news of the gospel is that God himself actually came down. You see, what God does in verse 5, God does over and over and over again all throughout the scriptures. He takes the initiative. He pursues people. He comes down. And in the climax of the story of the scriptures and the climax of the story of our world, God himself comes down in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus came down the staircase, out of heaven, into history. Jesus came down to us in order to lay down his life for us. Jesus' ambition was to trust God entirely. His life was not all about me, but all about God. And yet his life was torn down. He was crucified, died, and buried. And on the cross and in the tomb, it seems his name would be forgotten. But because of his obedience to God's plan for his life, on the third day, God raised him from the dead and highly exalted him. He brought him up. And as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, God bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. Jesus did not seek a name for himself. He made his life all about God. And because he did, God gave him the greatest name, the name above every name. And now because he did, the forgiveness that we need is available not because we go up, but because he came down. Therefore, what God is asking of you today is simply to trust in the one who came down for you. Trust in the one who came down for you. Not in yourself, not in your skyscrapers, not in your ability to go up. Trust in the one who came down for you. Obey his plan for your life and for the world. Let him give you a name. Trust in the one who came down for you. In the second to last chapter of the entire Bible, in Revelation 21, we see the holy city coming down out of heaven to the earth. It is a glorious city, the kind of city that every earthly city aspires to be. It is fully built in every way. And in that holy city, there are believers from all the nations of the world, from every tribe and every tongue and every people on the planet. God's plan has at last reached its fulfillment. And at the center of that city, there is not a tower, but rather there is God himself. He dwells there forever. And do you know who gets to spend eternity there with him? It is not those who have made a name for themselves. Rather, it is those who have received a name from him. Their names are not forgotten. Their names are remembered in the Lamb's book of life. And they will spend eternity enjoying the one who came down for them. And so today, trust in him, not yourself. Trust the one who came down for you and make him your great ambition in life. Pray with me. Father, you are up. You are bigger, better, greater, grander, higher, mightier than we could ever be or ever imagine. You are more than us. We are puny by comparison. 
God, we try and try and try to make ourselves big, to make a name for ourselves, to be memorable, to be significant. And yet the only memory that matters, the only significance that matters is that which comes from you. Today, Father, for those of us who've been building skyscrapers, trying to make our names great, would you, would you do whatever it takes in our life to thwart those efforts, confuse those efforts, to stop us in our tracks? Would you grab hold of our lives that what we build, whatever skyscrapers we erect, that they would point toward you and not toward us? And Father, I pray for those of us who are sitting in the, in the, in the weight of that gap right now, who, who, who see how far up they need to get. God, would they know today, would we all know today that you have come down and because you've come down, everything we need, a name, forgiveness, everything we need is available to us in Christ. Would you help us to trust in the one who came down? Help us to trust in you. Make us people who are deeply dependent on you and who do everything we do for your glory, for the sake of your great name. We pray that in Jesus' name, the name above every name. Amen. Amen.